The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Well, I mean, you know, I may not know uh, a lot about wine, but I do know what I like. So, what do you like? Wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that> well, <laughs> me too. Orange wine, red wine, white wine. I like I like everything, maybe too much, or there's... There's that study. According to that study, I, I don't. What's la 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 at that study? No, <laughs> I don't want to hear about that study. Um, but I, I will admit to spending a significant portion of my uh, of my grocery dollar on wine. So fess up then. How how, how much do you? How drink? much do I drink? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I no. I'd rather I'd rather tell you how much I make or or how often I have sex. Actually, really? Yeah. Not, Not enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's a running theme. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, our guest this week, she actually knows a lot about wine, uh, the wine industry, sort of a fair amount about journalism, a lot about marketing, and particularly how it targets women. We're talking to Natalie McLean, who's author of a highly successful newsletter as well as several books about wine, including a brand new one called Wine Witch on Fire. And although it seems that she has a dream job, she had a terrible experience within the industry that kind of mirrors what happened to you, Wendy, when you left the CBC. Uh, yeah, we're going to go there. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we are. There's a Just a little. We, we are going to talk about my time at the CBC. Um, but mostly we're going to talk about how sexism is in the wine uh, industry, what a wine taster actually does, and how much is too much. And uh, while we have her, we're going to get some tips, I hope, like what to look for in a less expensive wine or or what wine goes with artichokes. W- what? With, with artichokes? Yeah, that's a tough pair. You really eat that many artichokes? <laughs> like, really? All right. With no further ado, Natalie McLean, thank you for putting up with that intro. It was really nice to see you out in your field there. (laughs) It's great to be here, Wendy and Mo. I I think we could have this conversation over a glass or two. Um, You seem like my people, my wine people. (laughs) (laughs) We have, honestly, Wendy and I have a lot of conversations over a glass or three, but not usually while we're doing the podcast. But I mean, we could start at any time. Yeah. So in the background, there's this vineyard or something. So are, are you, you're like a, obviously outstanding in your field. You're, you're, where are you? That's- <laughs> I'm a field reporter. Yeah. That's a painting from California. And I did get permission from the artist to use it as my backdrop. Yes. I've learned a lot in the last 10 years. Oh, wow. But yeah, it's uh, the old Inglenook winery. It's now the Francis Ford Coppola, where you can go see all the movie mem- memorabilia and that sort of thing in his winery. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I want to get this out of the way because I must admit, like, I knew you were a wine reviewer and I sort of knew about that, but I didn't know until I read the book about how, yeah, I mean, the book is about, it's about drinking, it's about divorce, but it's also about defamation. That's in the title. Oh, the three Ds. Yeah. Yeah, all the dismal Ds. The publishing team said you cannot have delirium, destitution. Or diarrhea. uh, (laughs) That's all a lot of books. (laughs) So anyway, I I was kind of struck by the parallels. And then I thought, you know, let's just ignore this. Because I I hate bringing my story about what happened at the CBC and so on onto the podcast. But there's so, so is it okay if we talk about that? Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah. So, I mean, your, your thing was not to go deeply into the weeds. Your thing was basically, it was, uh, you quoted a bunch of other people's reviews and you didn't properly cite their, you know, their references and their backgrounds and, and so on and so forth. Mine was a lot more complicated. I basically, I used the N word. I should never have used the N word. Uh, I used the whole word, but I was, it was with a bunch of colleagues and we were. It was not used in a derogatory term. You were, at, this is important to point out, you were actually quoting the title of another piece that you guys wanted to explore so yeah well we were george floyd had just been killed and uh, by the police and it was a very emotional time and and i hurt people i should not have used that word and i apologized immediately we can get into that because you sort of apologize without apologizing so i anyway it was just it it blew up and i sort of expected that the cbc would come to my defense uh, after punishing me which they should have anyway your your situation that like the whole thing like blew up and I got, I got completely trashed you got completely trashed but but you handled things differently first of all you, you actually had a lawyer which I never had and the lawyer told you whatever you do do not apologize so I just uh, like how did you figure out how to get out of uh, out of that hole sure so sorry is um, the most expensive word in the English language <laughs> because it admits guilt and it can be used uh, litigious against you. I didn't go to journalism school, and this isn't excuse number one, but I just was so naive. This was back in 2012, kind of the heyday of aggregators, so Huffington Post and Rotten Tomatoes and so on. And when I started quoting these reviews that were actually on the LCBO, the, the government liquor store site for Ontario, it was because I had noticed some other sites doing it. Anyway, I, I'm a glass half full kind of gal. So I thought, I'm not going to ask them to take down my reviews. I'm just going to do it too, because doesn't that provide more context for a wine? Somebody else's opinion in addition to mine. Wrong. <laughs> um, so I, you know, the, the legal advice I got was that I was within the bounds of fair use. Well, it's called fair dealing in Canada. And it's good if we don't go down the legal rabbit hole because it, this will get very tedious, very fast. We'll never get out. Yeah. This will be your lowest <laughs> rated podcast ever. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it didn't matter what, what the legalities were or that, you know, I offered to fix them or whatever. It was the accusation ignited literally a bonfire. And then it just spiraled from there to other websites and newspapers around the world, from the South Africa Times to the, the New York Post. It was crazy, all within the span of like 24, maybe 48 hours. So we didn't talk a lot about cancel culture back in 2012, but I, I think I can speak from experience what it's like. And even when you try to jump in and do any explaining, you add fuel to the fire. So, you know, whether you explain, it, it goes wild. Whether you don't explain, then they say, hey, she's like not answering the accusations. I found that so interesting because you you chose to to fight back. So you gave you gave interviews and you told people that 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 you had made a mistake and that you were going to fix it. Um, but you also kind of told people to screw off. Whereas I, you know, I'd worked at CBC for forty years and it took it took a year of being investigated. And during that time, I just thought, you know, they're going to want me back. I've been here for forty years. I, I made a mistake. I hurt people without ever meaning to. But they're going to want me back. 
they didn't want me back. They were perfectly happy to feed the trolls. And, and then the trolls take over. And as you say, like in your case, the trolls, they went, they went crazy, including some of your colleagues. They went crazy. It was unbelievable. I looked at the whole thread of after when all this broke. Then what was the day after Christmas or it was a week before? It was just a week before my nightmare before Christmas. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it was just the vitriol. And the piling on. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's sort of the, the false fellowship of hating the same person. People want to be part of something larger. And so they'll find some cause, whether, you know, for good or bad. But there's some sort of beyond herd mentality that takes over online. And I think it's made even worse these days with bots encouraging people to get bolder and bolder, you know, with what I call their keyboard courage. So it is really hard to, 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 to you know, to stop. You can't stop it. The only thing you can hope for is it dies from lack of oxygen or they find the next person to go after. Which they do, which it does. And they do. They always do. And that's how mine ended. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what it does to, to friends too. Like I had a, a very, very close friend who, you know, two years after the fact said to me, Wendy, I'm really sorry. I, I should have stood up for you more than I did because so many people thought, well, the, nobody's talking about it. Cause I didn't talk about it for a year. You did, you gave interviews, you were public and I didn't talk about it. And so people were like, even a journalist in the, at, at another network in Ottawa, told a friend of mine, oh, yeah, well, she she called somebody at the end. No, I didn't. I would never do So you're right. I mean, people, trolls, they, they basically take information and they use it to advance their own agenda, whatever that agenda is, whether it's for good or ill. It's just, anyway, it, it took you 10 years to write this. And and, <laughs> and now here you are. <laughs> I'm a slow writer. <laughs> Why 10 years? 10 years because... Um... Well, for five years, I couldn't look at the notes. At the time, the the lawyer told me, take screenshots, keep your journal entries going. And so I did that almost mechanically. And then I locked it away. And I couldn't look at those notes for five years because, you know, it's just, I mean, I'm not going to compare. Well, I guess I am in some ways. When, when someone's in a car accident, um, they've done studies with MRI brain scans, and they will read the script of the accident to them. And the brain lights up in the exact same areas and ways as if they're experiencing the accident. So they're not remembering it, they're reliving it. So for five years, I just could not look at those notes. And after five years, I thought, well, this story is just keeps ricocheting around in my, my head. I need to let it out, at least on paper. And so I did as a private exercise for making sense of what had happened. But I had no intention of publishing a book. I've got a whole stash of notes and screenshots, <laughs> um, and they're all, yeah, so. Give it time, yeah. Wendy. Oh, I mean, time. I've got quotes. I've got proof of people saying things that would get them fired for, like, way worse than, than what I supposedly did. So, it's, yeah, so another five years will be done. <laughs> <laughs> or you let it go. I mean, I'm spe- I've not experienced what you guys have experienced. I've had my own traumas, but nothing quite like that, and. There's also an argument for saying, okay, shit happened, but I, but I still, my talent hasn't been taken, my talent, well, whatever our talent is, <laughs> didn't, wasn't taken away. Uh, and let's focus on that, which I think you've also done because you have climbed out of that, the ashes of that year. You also underwent a divorce. Like it was just the worst year ever. 
It was a bad vintage. It was a really bad vintage, personally and professionally. A lot of Ds. Yeah, exactly. All the Ds. But, you know, like to pick up on both your points, the turnaround in terms of deciding to write about it publicly, I mean, I kept... I, well, I kept talking with women in the industry because what happened was pre Me Too, pre Harvey Weinstein, and the the wine industry is so clubby. I mean, there is a real social grapevine where you can get delisted very quickly, um, ostracized. So after that, those five years, and after hearing so many stories, I thought, well, you know, I've heard memoirs say, well, I write my story so other people feel less alone. I thought, well, what does that really mean? If our situations are so different mine and the readers, how can my story help anybody? And so I had to think about that for a while. Like, what am I doing here? But I think, you know, I make the comparison, like when we're parents, and we all have, I think, children, adults in their 23, 24-ish range. But when they are little, we ask them questions. So are you hungry? Are you sad? You know, because we're trying to give them that vocabulary to express their emotions so that they don't have to always resort to crying and tantrums and just screaming. And I think as adults, we forget that our emotions, feelings get more complex as we age. And, you know, Brené Brown, I love her, Dr. Brené Brown, in her Atlas of the Heart book, she she deals with 87 emotions because we've lost, we well, either lost or don't have the vocabulary to express ourselves. But when we can express ourselves, when we find the words, I think it unlocks something in us, whether it's peace or relief or whatever. So the stories that I'm getting back from early readers is that they are finding themselves in this book, but through a completely different experience. So, you know, they may not have gone through a divorce, but they've probably felt loneliness or the longing for love. Um, They may not have been, you know, chased down by an angry mob online, but they've probably felt career disappointment or a fear of the future. So what I think a good memoir does is allow you to experience all those emotions, put names to them, articulate them, uh, but that you can go through somebody else's story safely and see how someone can emerge on the other side, you know, stronger, wiser, whatever. You talk about sexism in the industry. I mean, Maureen and radio face a lot of sexism. We can talk about that uh, in television. Certainly, there's a lot. But but how bad is it in the in the wine industry? Um, it's pretty. Uh deep-rooted. I, I can't avoid all these puns, but <laughs> sorry. I'll try to find another metaphor if I can, but it's my world. So the wine world is so, I, I said, so clubby. It's much less formalized than the restaurant industry. So most wineries in Canada and the US have fewer than 20 employees. Most don't have an HR department, let alone a harassment policy. So, and, and all the mentorships or training is usually one-on-one. So whether you want to become a winemaker or a sommelier or whatever you want to do in the industry, it's usually a one-on-one relationship with someone with a much bigger power differential, which of course lends itself to abuse. Lots of studies have been out there. I mean, 2012, 10 years ago, so it must be all better and brighter now. It's not. They did a 2018 study where 89% of women in the hospitality industry, which includes wineries and restaurants, experience some form of sexual harassment. In 2020, the New York Times bro- broke the story of the Court of Master Sommeliers, where there was uh, allegations and um, 21 women came forward about getting sexually harassed by the Court of Master Sommeliers, which is a really hoity-toity kind of a fit, uh, designation you can get in the wine world. 
So that's that's 2020. Um, and I think there are more stories that are going to come out. It's just it's really hard to talk about it in the wine industry. And, and that's another reason I'm doing this book, because I, I figure you can't kill me twice. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, and this is sort of a. Um... Uh, corollary of that. Those, this is how women are treated within the industry. Then on the outside as consumers. Mm-hmm. That's something that you've been very outspoken about. And I was just saying to Wendy before you we, you joined us that immediately if I see something that's pink and says like, well, girls night out is probably the most prominent example or has a rose in the bottom of the bottle or and it's like, stop that. Stop selling me that based on pretty and, and it's been insidious and it's encouraged women to to like to to embrace the idea that you're not having fun unless you're getting bombed. Yeah, really. Uh, you know, and and that we we as women need a reason to drink. You know, it's girls' night out, or it's a fancy occasion. Oh yeah, or mom's had an exhausting day, so no one's thanking mom. So the damn her. mom will yeah. thank herself with another glass of wine. You know, and the message on the bottle is that. We are, you know, we're either babes or battle axes. So babes, you know, drawn to, you know, stilettos and high heels <laughs> and red lips and roses, or we're battle axes. I mean, there's Mad Housewife is a brand and so on. But no, the marketing that I see directed towards men in wine is about sophistication and complexity. And a man has a drink because he wants to. No one, he doesn't have to ask. But yeah, women, women buy 80% of wine. We're still a household purchasers of everything. We drink 66% of it. I never thought of, you know, you know, I'm a raw, raw feminist kind of person, but I never thought that my drinking was actually a feminist reaction. (laughs) It's like the Virginia Slim cigarettes of the 1960s, those torches of freedom. You can declare. You've come a long way, baby. Not if you're still calling me baby. Exactly, exactly. Pour yourself another glass. But what about the artichokes? That's what Maureen really wants to know. Well, no, well, we can get into pairings, but um, like the practical stuff. But I, I want to ask you before we get into that very specific stuff. So I I was fascinated and it reminded me, I think Elvis Costello or Frank Zappa once said writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And I thought that applies to writing about wine, which is such a sensual and physical experience is um, is tough. You are you are a um, what do you what do you call them? Not a, a super taster. Yes, that doesn't mean I drink a lot though. I used to. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that and how you translate that into writing about it, and then we'll get to the artichokes. Sure, a super taster is a phenomenon uh, that was discovered in 1999 by Dr. Linda Barastuck, and she tasted or tested various um, people how, how dense their taste buds are. And she discovered that the phenomenon of super taster applies to about 25% of the population, most of whom are women. And it just means you have a lot of taste buds. She said they live in a sensory neon world. It's like having 500 fingers instead of five. So (laughs) I've seen that in the movie, I think. (laughs) 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 It gets worse. So it makes you a more sensitive taster. Uh, not necessarily a better taster that comes with practice, but what goes along with that is a sensitivity to your world. So when I got tested to see if I was one, the the person testing me said, I'll bet you take out the tags of all your clothing. And I do. I bet you have. Oh, I do that. But I'm not a wine reviewer. Well, no, but, but, you, but, <laughs> but you're super sensitive. Sensitive. 
yeah, like living in a neon world, have thermostat wars with your family. Like you're just super attuned to every little muscle twitch someone makes or whatever. Um, tea, not coffee. Very attuned. Huh. Yes. Well, that's what we say anyway. Very attuned. Very attuned. So can you not be a sommelier if you're, if you're not a super taster? Oh, sure. You can be a, definitely can be a sommelier, can be a wine writer and so on. It, it's not a prerequisite. In fact, some would argue that it's, can work against you sometimes because you will come across a very big wine, a full bodied, lots of oak, lots of alcohol. And it's just like, uh, turn it down. It's like the guy who's too loud at the bar. It's like, you don't want to take that one home, but you have to recognize like there's a broad spectrum of palates. And so when I review wines, I'm reviewing it for people who love full bodied wines. You love this wine, that kind of thing. Yeah. The women of ill repute. I was fascinated to hear about your the the the, um, the setup that you have. So you've got cases of wine all over your house that people send you, and you try to taste thirty bottles a day. So I have two questions: Is there a lot of spitting? And secondly, what happens to the all the open bottles? And do you need any help with that? Can can we come? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's three questions. <laughs> yeah, re- recycling day here is just an embarrassment on the street with the crowds fighting. <laughs> uh, well, it is here too, and I'm not. <laughs> I hide my blue box, but but tell me what like so you could send all this stuff. How and you take notes and you go you go down the the the, the row and you and you sip all these wines and. And you clean your palate. Tell me more. Then what happens? (laughs) Then what happens? The difference between tasting and drinking is thinking and spitting. So you do have to expectorate spit uh, or else you will be sloshed. Like the best time to taste in the day is at 9 a.m. And facing 30, you know, full bodied Cabernets from Chile is not exactly, you know, a lovely thing. Although I have no sympathy, no sympathy for my job. But yeah, I will I will taste usually actually later in the day, compare like to like, line up those bottles. And then what I do, I only take an ounce or two and then spit it out. I recork all the bottles and pass them on to other sommeliers or writers here in the community so that the wineries who are sending me samples um will get more than one review, of course, so only if we like it. Invited over, I guess. Maureen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, sadly, my friends like looked like, oh, is that what you do with them? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh well. Oh, well, I guess so what that's about very the worthy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah, pairing. You you're also you have a knack for pairing, like like unparalleled. <laughs> it's my superpower. So artichokes, getting to the heart of the matter. So. <laughs> ah, oh. <laughs> come from Nova Scotia. So it's all about puns and cannot help myself. Anyway, so artichokes and asparagus both produce a natural organic compound called cinnarin, which is tastes very bitter. So what happens is that after you eat artichokes, everything you eat and drink after that is going to taste sweeter by comparison. So that really wreaks havoc on wine, especially if you have maybe even an off dry, just a little bit of sweetness in your wine, it's going to taste really cloying and sweet. So the answer or the recommendation I give is to go with a really bone dry white wine. So it's going to bring up the fruit, make it taste a little sweeter, but not cloying and you know your taste buds will be happy and your artichoke will be 
tasting better as well. Good to know. So we've uh, we've debunked the uh, you know red only red with uh, red meat and only white with chicken. When, uh, that we've broken down uh, those uh, those those barriers, I guess. But uh, wither rosé. Oh. Yes, rosé all day. Although I'm supposed to be talking moderation after this book. Or we'll get, we'll get to that or, 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 or we won't. <laughs> <laughs> rosé is a beautiful wine. Just love it. Like So we have to forget the 1970s, 80s, sweet, cloying, syrupy, pink stuff. Today's rosés are beautiful. They're, they could be bone dry. Not that they have to be bone dry to be good because we shouldn't be doing any wine shaming with people who like sweet wine. Can we stop doing that? Um, but rosé I love because it has all of the flavor of a, a red wine often. It's a baby red, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people are, have no idea what rosé is. Some people think it's red and white poured together, which... Yeah, that would know. be the cheap way. Yeah. Um, but the, the good way is that you grow red, good red grapes, and it's called sanye or bleeding which doesn't sound good, but it's the runoff, the lighter pink juice from the first crush of the grapes. So it's it's got all that flavor, but none of the heavy tannin oak and alcohol. Well, I have a quote for you, and it's from someone who makes bread for a living. And it's, um, well, I don't know who it's originally from, but it's everything in moderation. Including moderation. Yeah. Including moderation. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> So I think we should apply that to uh, to drinking. So yeah, so you're like a spitter now, right? Like you you used to drink a lot, and now you're now you drink just yeah. A little. That's got to be tough. That has got to be really tough because you can't not drink. That's your job. And I would also, while we're on the subject of tasting and spitting, I mean, there's a. Do you get the full effect if you don't swallow? And by the way, we're if you're just joining us, we're talking about wine. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, so there's five aspects to tasting wine, the sight, the smell, the feel, the body, and the finish. The finish is how long after you swallow does that impression last? Five seconds is considered long, like a as long in finish. all sensual pl- pleasures, I think. <laughs> Longer is better. But anyway, um, or one to two seconds is short, three seconds medium. I know that sounds really technical, but it's basically, can you, is it still coming back to you like a good memory smell wise? Yeah. It is hard to evaluate the wines. You you are absorbing through your soft tissue of your mouth anyway, but you know, if you, if you really want to be exact, you would let a small trickle go down. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you're, when you're tasting 30 wines and so on, you, you really, I, I have to watch it in terms of, like, you know, how much consuming. <laughs> Uh, yeah. barnyard and uh, i love barnyard yeah fruit salad so how much of it is bs because you know <laughs> it's like dandelion this and dog poo this and yeah yeah like some of that stuff is like yeah you went to school and uh whatever <laughs> uh, and some of it is oh yeah no i do taste the cherries or i do but the, the i don't know who comes up with all that stuff and 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 is it all True, you can tell us. Top secret. Okay, okay, just between <laughs> us then. Lean in here. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the vocabulary of wine has evolved over time and needs to go a long way because there's even embedded sexism with calling wines feminine and masculine and all the rest of it. But when it comes to this fruit salad stuff, I think that is, you know, um, wine succeeds where words fail because wine is a sensory 
uh, experience. And it's hard to trap that in words. So people are trying and struggling with all of these descriptors. But, you know, when I teach my online courses, I tell my students, just smell everything in your world around you. You know, when you cut open fruit or vegetables, that's when it's most pungent. Smell it. Develop a smell vocabulary. We live in a world that really we've attuned our visual sense and our auditory sense, but we've lost our sniffer sense that we used to have to have to avoid dying. Um, so smell everything. Smell the leather furniture. <laughs> You know, just don't let anybody see you doing it. Smell the uh, smell the cinnamon on your toast. <laughs> I'm practicing for my wine course. Um, but you have to develop your own vocabulary. One course that I taught, this woman said, well, that smells like the Dallas airport. And everybody's puzzled. We're tasting Riesling. And then we put it together. Sometimes Riesling can taste a, or smell a bit like petrol, and it's a good thing. So she's smelling the jet fuel. Another one said, that smells like my son's gerbil cage. We don't taste Chardonnay. No. no, you don't. But it's a whole lot more realistic. Was it cedar? Yes. The, the wood chips from yeah. the, the gerbil's cage. So yeah, be, you can be real about these descriptors. You don't have to get all fancy. And it's about developing your own smell vocabulary so that you heighten your own pleasure. I think what we appreciate or what we understand, we can appreciate a bit more. But it's okay. If you don't want to, just drink the wine. Don't think. So just saying, you know, I sometimes say to my husband something as profound as, it smells like dog poo, but but in a good way. In a good way. Well, like yeah, but well, like manure. There's that that sort of earthy smell. Yeah, manure. That's that barnyard thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um it's a common characteristic or aroma in great Pinot Noir. Some people don't like it for obvious reasons. Um, sometimes it's caused by Brettanomyces, which is a bacterial infection. But some people actually like it. So it just depends on your taste. I, I love, I know it's weird, uh, olfactory. I love the smell of markers and gasoline, you know that. Oh, me too. Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh, I could just stay at a gas station all day, but I think it's because my father was a mechanic. I don't know. But it's Something weird. It's it. just like that attraction. I don't want to taste it. I don't want to, but I, yes. I, the smell is heady. Just as an aside, I remember, I think it was Diptyque or one of the, when the first really expensive candles were being introduced and they had, there was one that was called Versailles. And I smelt it and I said to the person, I think it was at Liberty in London. And I said, this smells a little bit like pee. And she said, well, it's it's funny that you should say that because <laughs> it's expensive pee. It's very expensive. <laughs> but she said Versailles, they used to pee behind the tapestries. And so that smell, I know, well, they didn't have plumbing. Um, and so that smell is sort of imbued in the um, the wood. In the So if you go to Versailles, there are. The, the distinctness from that. And so they put that in the candle and I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I didn't buy it. You should be a sommelier. I mean, if you could smell the pee. Then- <laughs> no, I have to, my sign. Well, that's the other thing too. You have to be in a certain, like I, I have, uh, Wendy's been recovering from a cold for the last six years. and um, <laughs> Six weeks. Six, six weeks. weeks. And <laughs> I, you know, it's allergy season right now. And that you've got to be especially sensitive to that because- what if you, what if, like COVID, what if you lost your sense of taste and smell? Well, during my terrible vintage, I did temporarily lose my sense of smell. And, you know, I was t- smelling, tasting, trying to uh, a bunch of Shirazes. And I was like, oh, no, I don't smell anything. And it, it was temporary. But, um, you know, I did some research on it and talked to my doctor. But depression can cause lack, a, a loss of smell because your brain size shrinks and those 
the olfactory sense is very sensitive to that. And so I think it, it was probably related. Uh, it scared the heck out of me, though, because, you know, my nose is my job. We got to wrap up in in a minute, but I was I was well. At first, I was struck by the similarities with like I met my dad when I was eighteen. You met yours when you when you were sixteen. That you know leaves a bit of a mark, which may become apparent in another ten or fifteen years. Um, but you talk about you devote your book to your to your mom, and um, yeah, I think my mom. I've sort of she died two years ago, and I've been thinking about a lot about her since. But it's all about being brave, and I think that's I think Maureen. I think you. And I, I think that's why we invite people on the on the podcast is because they're trying to be brave. Um, no scaredy pants allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Just women of ill repute. I, I love that. Well, you know that makes us stronger or or funny anyway. But in absolutely, but he- just like witches. Like you know, I think. Some of these words we just need to stop being afraid of and embrace. I mean, reclaim is an overused word, but for me, a witch is a you know a wise woman who's walked through the flames and emerged on the other side, knowing the measure of her powers. Which and is why them. your book is called. I want to call it the wine, the witch, and the wardrobe, but it's wine. I do. It's wine, <laughs> witch on fire. Yeah. And uh, are you going to be doing a book tour, or is it? I am. Um, so uh, Toronto, May tenth. Niagara, May 13th, Halifax, June 12th, Calgary sometime, Ottawa is May 31st. So, yeah. That's where you're, you're living now, right? You're in, you're in Ottawa? But this yeah. is where I am now, yeah. So there's always books and bottles. No, she's in the field. She's in, she's in the field. She's outstanding in her field, yeah. I'm in the field. <laughs> you know where to get me. <laughs> if you're watching us on YouTube, you'll see that it's a be- that's a beautiful mural. Uh, Natalie McLean, you are, uh, you're just, uh, as we're going to say after you leave, wasn't she lovely? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for, for being so open and, and, and helpful. And now we know what to pair with artichokes. That's the very least that we've learned this week. I'm glad I could help you with that. That was my number one mission and reason for being here today. <laughs> if anything, I can save them from their artichoke disasters. <laughs> Seriously, I so appreciate both of you um, allowing me to chat with you and, and by extension, your audience. Um, I, I have binge listened to all of your episodes and absolutely love your take on life and would love to have a glass of wine with you sometime. Oh, that's almost certain to happen. And your newsletter, just to to subscribe, just go to nataliemcclain.com. Yep. And sometimes people find that hard to spell. There's many ways to spell it. So I've also got the URL right now, winewitchonfire.com. For the book, uh, I've got bonuses for the book. If people purchase it, I'll send them signed book plates. There's a free companion guide for book clubs, wine groups, and individual readers. So there's lots of stuff there at winewitch.com. And Maureen and I will be by your you house, leave your I guess, on Sundays. Is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really Recycling day is on Fridays. So good book to your know. tickets. Madeline McLean, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you both. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, she was, she was lovely. She was lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some are lovelier than others. They are. You know, I get very nervous talking about the whole cancellation thing that... I know you do. uh, I know. But it's amazing how many times we've had guests on in the past who have... And that's kind of one of the reasons why we started this podcast is there are people that come up against, and not just women, who come up against some serious roadblock in their careers or their personal lives and and have to get around it. And that's, you know, we bring empathy to the table because that's happened to us. 
So, yeah, there were so many other things I wanted to ask her, you know, like uh, tomatoes, hard to pair. Tomato, well, an asparagus. I mean, I didn't know yeah, that asparagus yeah. and artichokes are in the same family, yeah. but only one makes your pee funny. So we didn't get to talk about the really important things. <laughs> I think we covered it all off. Um, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I've done, you've been to wine tastings, haven't you? Where you do spit into the thing. I've been to a few. Yeah, no, my husband's really into wine and he would spend his days spitting into glasses and I'm like, um, oh, look outside. I'm not really interested in <laughs> To me, it's like, wow, this is good. My reaction is not to spit it. <laughs> this is good. I'll have more. <laughs> yeah, I don't know Which how many is... times we dropped the hint, like we'd like to come over and collect the bottles. Yeah, but... well, I, th- I think we'd absolutely uh, 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 be welcome to. Well, not collect. I think she'd like to have a glass of wine. I'd like to have a glass of wine with her. I'd have. I'd like to have a glass of wine with a lot of our guests. So I guess that's a good thing, except for the ones that don't drink. I mean, I'd still, you know, they could have ginger ale. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't get into the study, so we'll have to have a, a we'll have to have a a conversation about. I, I don't think it was two sips a week, I and mean, it was two glasses a week. Or we'll kill yeah, you, right? I know but, that's real. That that was maybe the worst news of twenty twenty two. Yeah, well, can't fix everything at once. Chins <laughs> <laughs> up, bottoms up. up. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.